Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. This episode is sponsored by Isotope. Their audio software like RX helps to clean up my recordings, and they have a ton of other products on their site, isotope.com. Right now, Ruinous Media and Fretboard Journal listeners save 10% at checkout on any Isotope plugin or bundle using the code FRET10. Isotope designs award-winning software, plugins, hardware, and mobile apps, powered by the highest quality audio processing, machine learning, and strikingly intuitive interfaces, so you can focus on your craft. So if you have a podcast or produce music, go to isotope.com slash ruinous and shop their award-winning audio production products and save 10% off your order with the code FRET10. Make your audio sound better. Welcome to another episode of the Design Freaks podcast, where we talk about music industry, art, and design, record covers, graphic design, music history, design history. My name's Clarita, and I am your host. Welcome to episode 41 of the Design Freaks podcast. It's also the end of October, which means spooky time, but also anniversary time. So it's the third year of the show. And thanks to everyone who's been a guest on the show, downloaded an episode, donated, liked a social post, or even just had a positive thought about it. (laughs) All of it counts. And I truly do appreciate it. Of course, a special thank you to everyone at Ruinous Media and extra special thanks to John Dwyer for the use of his song. I also want to give a shout out to Daniel Onufer. Onufer. Uh, thank you for the donation. So nice. And Daniel also attends the same design program I graduated from, uh, Seattle Central Creative Academy. And I know that program was challenging enough without a pandemic. So shout out to all the students and the faculty at SCCA. Y'all are doing great work. Um, So this episode, I love this episode. It's a conversation with multidisciplinary artist Sunny Kay. He sent me a copy of his gorgeous book, Headspaces, Surrealistic Album Art and Collage by Sunny Kay, published by Robot Enemy Books in 2017. Thank you, Sunny. Um, And I'm going to read the bio from it because it's better than anything I could have written. Um, So Sunny K's name appears in credits and liner notes of albums by literally hundreds of underground and even some not so underground bands. 
of the past two decades. His roles at one time or another have included art director, vocalist, musician, label founder, tour manager. Um, He even refers to himself as music mogul in this episode. Uh, Writer, illustrator, though album cover designer is one for which he's probably most well known. Uh, Yeah, go check out his Discogs. He's designed covers for the Mars Volta, Sun Ra, Omar Rodriguez Lopez and Damo Suzuki, lots of other bands, including the acts on his own label, Gold Standard Laboratories or GSL, which put out a bunch of really cool bands that you probably know. The book does a really great job of outlining the rest of his career, really interesting stuff. Um, And you can see it all like the early punk flyers and some of the other like origin story stuff we talked about in the episode. So if you've listened to the show before, you know, I am a huge fan of art and design books. So get into it. Before the interview with Sunny, I want to say that if you enjoy the show, please share it with other vinyl and design freaks. Why not? Check out all the photos and links that accompany this episode and for all episodes at designfreakspodcast.com. You can also contact me there, find my socials, donate, etc. I'm at Design Freaks Podcast on Instagram. And for more music-related podcasts on the Ruinous Media Network, check out ruinousmedia.com. Enjoy this conversation with collage magician Sunny K. Hi, Sunny. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too, Clarita. Thank you for having me on. Uh, absolutely. Your artwork is eye-poppingly incredible. Well, thank you. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about uh, Gold Standard and uh, or GSL. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to just ask you all the questions all at once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where sure. to begin. <laughs> but since it's a design podcast, I guess maybe I'll start with you as an artist slash graphic designer, which came first and, you know, what do you gravitate toward? Do you even separate them in your mind? Mm. That's, yeah, it's different. Sometimes it, the, the lines are certainly blurred uh, and the definition itself. Well, I guess being an artist came first, although I was um, very reluctant to embrace that word for a long time. I, I felt, uh, a little intimidated by it. I felt um, like my peers in, at school and um, who used it were uh, full of shit <laughs> and uh, not entitled to it. And um, so I, uh, I sort of uh, arrived at it kind of reluctantly a, a decade or two later, just for lack of better term to just keep it short, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But as a kid, my interests were you know, I, I was, I guess I was drawn towards drawing, drawing and that kind of thing. I was encouraged to, to do that to a certain extent by my family, but not, not in any kind of like particularly serious way. Um, I did have lessons here and there as a kid and, uh, um, but I was, I was, uh, I, my, my earliest passion that I, that I remember really from, from childhood was music. 
and the the uh, the the packaging of music, the aesthetic and and uh, and the whole um, image that went along with it were, was very um, was fascinating to me and something I uh, within my own family there wasn't really a, a foundation for that necessarily. Not that it was discouraged. It's just my parents didn't have record collections or anything like that. But encountering them with neighbors and that kind of thing as I grew up and particularly. Uh, moving to California when I was uh, at an impressionable age and being surrounded by kids and families that were in the music industry or or otherwise um, just steeped in that kind of stuff. I had a wonderful next door neighbor too, who uh, who was a few years older than I, and she had been really into Led Zeppelin and and like late seventies sort of hair rock and. She had subscribed to a great old magazine called Circus, which was sort of a heavy metal uh, focused teen magazine um, with great interviews and writing and photos. And she had subscribed for a few years as a kid and the subscription had kept coming after she stopped paying for it. And so for the last four or five years of it arriving, she gave it to me. And I became overnight acutely aware of all, of all this stuff that I really didn't know anything about musically. I just, I could recognize these people and um, became sort of conversational and in, in, in a whole language that um, was really exciting and, and new. And, and, I, and I realized quickly that other, other people loved it. And um, so my first experience really with being a graphic designer or music mogul, so to speak, was cutting up those magazines ah. and making homemade sort of badges, buttons out of them and flogging those at school at lunch. Wow. Do you remember any of the subject matter in those buttons? Or do you I do. Any? Actually, I've hung, on, I've hung on to a couple. One <gasps> of them is Ozzy Osbourne strangling a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, Ozzy, I loved Ozzy Osbourne so much. He's, his were the ones I kept. I have another of him with his head freshly shaved and a big smile on his face. Aww. But the others were like, I remember making some of um, Peter Gabriel. Um, there was like um, a top 10 sort of in the back of the magazine that had these cool little black and white photos that were perfect for buttons. And so uh, I remember Peter Gabriel charting twice or so. I remember having two identical Peter Gabriel buttons somehow. Oh, my um, God. Awesome. I was going to ask you if that circus magazine was the first time you saw work by Storm Thorgerson and if he influenced you. Yes. Yeah, it was a huge influence. Um, okay. I guess it probably, well, it would, it would probably have been there. Yes. Or there was a couple of, a couple of boys in my class who were this uh, twin brothers who um, had an older brother with a massive record collection and a father who was, a sales rep for Warner brothers who wow. was the guy going around like handing out cocaine <laughs> at record stores to get stuff on, on the shelves and that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I think quite literally. And, uh, <laughs> between them, I God, my, my exposure to music was just blown wide open. I mean, I got to take home the entire Beatles catalog, uh, and, and sit with it for as long as I needed to. Um, Plus, we were, we were um, you know, 10, year, 12, 10, 11 years old, um, privy to promo copies of records by big bands that hadn't come out yet. So I remember getting um, Flick of the Switch by ACDC and thinking, is this a bootleg or something? Like, I had no, it didn't even seem like a real thing. It was this, bl like, a black and white cover, like a drawing and stuff. It was so far removed from all their other records. I thought, what does their dad do? Like, <laughs> what is this thing, you know? <laughs> 
but um, it was awesome. It was really, I mean, in hindsight, like, yeah, I, th- that was where I undoubtedly would have seen Yes Records for the first time. Uh, well, that's not, I'm sorry, it's Roger Dean, but uh, yeah, Pink Floyd, definitely. Um, probably, probably others that I didn't, I wouldn't have even recognized at the time and then, you know, discovered years later, but. Um, were you old enough when you were living in the other countries that I read about? You were spent time in Barcelona to notice things like that packaging and design and how it differed from American design? No, I was too young. I, I lived in Barcelona um, through through no effort of my own. I lived there as a uh, and uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa, um, mm-hmm. when I was a baby. My dad was a film director, and we moved around the world a lot in those mm-hmm. first few years of my life. No, I wound my first sort of like awareness comes from uh, the time I lived in England when I was from about uh, three until I was seven. It's amazing. It's amazing how much you do soak up as a child that, that early on. Um, I mean, I, I just yesterday was imagining in my mind, the floor plan of our first house in England, which would have been, you know, from the time I was three until I was about five. Wow. And I, and I'm like, where does that come from? I can I can't remember where I was last week, and yet I can. You know what I mean? I spent like I spent very little. I spent comparatively little time in that house, and um, the mind is strange. It is. But particularly for for packaging design and the whole aesthetic of 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 packaging culture for me the, the 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 whole thing was was blown open in japan God. um japan is just in 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 information overload everywhere you look every business interest every shop every truck every delivery company every anything has a, a cartoon mascot attached to it and it's like this whole language that's going on there of these cutesy little characters um of which um, things like Pokemon and stuff are just like, you know, just literally one of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of things like it. But that's just one aspect of it. I mean, the whole, every everything there is so aesthetically pleasing. I've since, you know, become aware of books of, of things to do with packaging in, in places like India and that kind of stuff that I find fascinating just because they're so, so theatrical, a lot of it, honestly. Um, yeah. And so how did you translate... I know you didn't want to call yourself an artist, but you definitely made art. How did music enter that? How did those overlap? I guess was it when you got when you started your label and you needed to create artwork? Yeah, that was that was a big part, absolutely a big part of it. Before that, it had been making flyers for shows mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Um, for for well, a couple of years in in Boulder, Colorado. Before I left there, I was um, the person doing uh, a lot of the shows uh and you know i've um i've i've said it before somewhere i'm I'm sure and probably sound like a broken record at this point but my love for doing shows was was really like um i loved the bands i loved the whole culture of it i loved contributing to it and being able to bring things um to to our part of the country but also um i just loved making the flyers i loved um even though i wasn't particularly so many other noteworthy flyer artists in the in the underground of American punk and hardcore and beyond that um, really did make an effort. I in hindsight I look at my 
flyer work for the most part. It was not that interesting, but um, I really loved doing it. It was funny. I think I became a more interesting designer and artist later. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, I was um, easily amused and, and pleased with myself early on and, and uh, <laughs> wished I had maybe had more of a, I don't know, collaborative kind of thing. Maybe with other people might have produced some more things that seem perhaps more timeless. The shows themselves are are classic and timeless, but the mm-hmm. advertisements are in many cases lacking. <laughs> yeah, that it all depends on what you're looking at at the time too, I feel like. Um, Absolutely, I up, yeah. I grew up in Austin and there was kind of a oh, sameness yeah. to <laughs> promotional artwork. It's well, I it's funny because I but it there's also a, you know, um I guess because of Kozik, n- number one, mm-hmm. like there's a yeah. there's a regional thing that came out of there that was then exported to L.A. and all these other mm-hmm. at Seattle in particular, uh, on largely on his back and and, and um, Coop and all these other people. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, the early stuff, particularly those early Kozik flyers, the Xerox ones. Some of them are really really amazing works of art stuff. I remember one for Butthole Servers in particular. It's just like. I'd love to have that in my house, but I can understand if there was, you know, like anything. I imagine there's a whole legion of uh, imitators, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, I could see maybe how it, everything in the '90s. I t- too, I mean, it, once once everyone got a Macintosh, it just seemed like yeah. the whole stre- stretching the font thing. Became, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, that was just all over the place, and it was not in good taste. Yeah, and Joe has commented on his show before that the '90s design was basically do everything you can. Drop shadow, border yes. on everything, you know, yeah. 10 point stroke. Of course, pr- pr- presuming that you had a computer that could handle that. I, my early, <laughs> my, my earliest design stuff was on, was on a compact. Presario. Yeah. I, I remember what my, mine was like some numbers, but I, um, I remember trying to do a two page catalog for the label when I had about four releases and, it's funny that you mentioned the drop shadow because I, I this this whole document was about one megabyte, <laughs> and it was just like you know it took fifteen minutes to do any kind of maneuver on it, and I remember adding this shadow, and the whole computer turned off. Oh uh, yeah, the shadow <laughs> still makes Illustrator stall. Oh man, <laughs> <It's> so ridiculous. <laughs> Is there any pushback to digital artwork? It's funny. I anticipated some uh, mm-hmm. all, from the very beginning, and um, really, my biggest critic that my my, my most vocal critic has been myself. Uh, mm. I'm the one who has pushed back because I'm the one who's constantly been asking myself, "Is what I'm doing a legitimate uh, form of art?" Why do you think that is? I think for me personally, it's for a number of reasons. I think um, there are unfulfilled parts of my. I don't know what you would call it of me mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who felt a natural inclination towards fine art uh, mm-hmm. that I didn't really embrace or I didn't really pursue it. I circle back to it every few years to kind of um, sort of uh, uh, have a reset and um, do something that feels more that, that just, it's kind of like um, stretching a different a leg that you didn't know is, is, is there you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it's something that I, I really in, enjoy doing and in, uh, in this case in drawing but I had tried to be a painter in college and stuff and and uh, and admire those 
admire the more kind of like traditional fine art mediums a lot. Mm-hmm. I think as breathtaking as there are as examples of there are of all kinds of art in the world. I I have yet in my own experience to find anything that really feels as com- completely in, enveloping and and um, convincing as a as a really great painting. So you hold paint paintings in high regard. That's, I do, yeah. No, yeah. no particular artists. I'm, I have no. I have no. Um, it's it's not really about any artists in particular. I think it's about a, just great work. And to stand uh, before something in a museum that, or a gallery that uh, can be as small as a postcard or as big as a you know two story wall, uh, and just and be mesmerized by it, and and not just the technique in it, just the. I mean. I, I don't know. For me, there's there's just something so so completely. It just uh, it eclipses every for a few moments or a few minutes. Um, I think it's why people have art collections. You know, yeah. I think it's why people. I think it's why people uh, want to be surrounded by art when they find art like that 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 speaks to them this way. And I've certainly been mo- been moved by all kinds of of art. Uh, the psychedelics experience for me is like the highest way of, of perceiving the world. But anyways, so I think it qualifies if that means anything. <laughs> but I'm wondering, how do you present your work in a physical space? Well, it's funny. I mean, I to circle back to your last one of your last questions was 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 there I think you said was there kind of pushback on digital art or. Oh, like yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So I, my own hangups about what I'm doing aside, I've kept doing it um, for the most, although, I mean, let's be honest, I haven't done it for, for very much for a couple of years because of my day job, but that's beside the point right now. Um, I've, the, I, I pursued the medium that wound up um, being kind of what I do because I felt for the first time ever as an artist, um, fine art or otherwise, I, a deep... Um, sense of of satisfaction at what I was doing with what I was doing mm-hmm. um I guess not deep enough to prevent some paranoia about it I'm wondering if it still qualifies as as legitimate art but still enough of a of an, enough of a, a resolution with it where I felt where I could step away from something for the first time ever and say that's finished mm-hmm. um that's what I that's what I wanted to express um the irony, of course, in that is that like the files themselves don't necessarily ever need to be finished, and I have gone back and and meddled with a couple. When the time came, the time came pretty quickly. Once I started doing this, and and these images started getting associated with particular groups, musical groups, and stuff, um, the interest in 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 exhibiting this, this, this these things on a wall. Um, you know, was there? I was in LA at the time. I had friends who were very encouraging and connected to. Um, spaces that weren't necessarily, you know, galleries with a capital G. I was, there was no, um, uh, there was no agents or any, any kind of anything like that involved. It wasn't like the legit art world. It was sort of like a DIY. It was sort of like the, the thing I'm used to. You just, you want to put on a show, you just do it. And um, so I, um, uh, you know, I, I began, I, I started by, pr- I had a friend who was working at a, at a, a high-end digital print place and I was able to do ca- a whole series of canvas prints for my first show which um, gave it the illusion of being very legitimate and very um, uh, maybe I don't know sponsored or something because I mean to actually have those things made for retail is not 
particularly cheap. And um, it was very eye-opening because I didn't sell anything. Uh, oh. I had a huge, I had a huge opening show and a, and a ton of support from people, but nothing sold. And, um, part of the reason I think in hindsight was the prints themselves were actually not very good. They were kind of dark. And, uh, also the, the work itself I think was, was new to people. And, um, I hadn't really, um, I don't know. I, I had more success with, with a couple of other shows later on, but, um, truth be told, like very, very few pieces of my art have sold through being um, exhibited in, in galleries or, or in, in even in group shows or anything like that, which is why, which is why when I was, when I was offered the opportunity to do a book of the art, um, I think uh, I was, I, I was eager to take that opportunity because I felt like the book was more of a, a medium that people could, um, spend time with and less of an investment and um, for a fraction of the money of, a, of one of these prints in a gallery, they could get the whole book. So yeah, anyway, that's, that's kind of where that came from in the book. The book has, has been, you know, it's not, a, it's by no means a bestseller, but it's definitely uh, been a, a good um, supplement yeah. for selling prints and that kind of thing. And, and I think it's um, made the art accessible to so- a lot of people who, who wouldn't have seen it otherwise? Oh, and not to mention the millions of albums that are in people's homes with your artwork, <laughs> but <laughs> you know. So we're talking about headspaces, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Well, it was published by my dear friend Bob Rob Medina, who um, was kind of a, um, a a gateway figure for me in the in the world of um, not only punk music but um, do it yourself thinking and 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 culture uh i met him when i was 17 in colorado and uh we wound up being college roommates and bandmates and uh he had a record label and um he was putting on shows and he had done all the things he'd been on tour and um it was you know it was living with him was uh was a whole kind of secondary schooling that that would go on after you know (laughs) uh, when we were in class and, and, uh, anyway, we've, we've never lost touch. We've, um, occasionally lived in the same city over the years and he's, um, had a very colorful life moving around the world, being a teacher in the international school system. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he began publishing books of his own stuff a few years ago. And, and, um, I've been instrumental in, in all of those projects, just doing layout or what have you design stuff. And, and, um, so eventually, um, he asked me to do one and, uh, it was, you know, um, uh, again, like th- something that just seemed like an obvious, um, vehicle for what I do. And uh, part of me was very, for a very brief time, I was, I felt kind of a little maybe intimidated. Like, um, I know other people who've put out books and felt that they were premature, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, I don't know how long you wait until something doesn't feel premature. I mean, I've been doing this work for uh, 10 years by the time the book came out. Uh, The older you get, the shorter that amount of time feels like. But to people half my age, that's a huge body of work. And uh, why keep a lid on it for for arbitrary reason like my own hang up, you know, so – yeah. So yeah, it 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 came out and uh, and uh, I would love. Hopefully, my uh, my 
Bob, who published it, uh, my publisher, um, is moving back to the U.S. next summer. And um, we've been talking about finally trying to do a, maybe a, a kind of a book tour together. We've released a, another couple of um, things together since then. Um, we did a book two years ago that's um, a fairly enormous um, collection of interviews and flyers and, and ephemera to do with the punk scene in, in Colorado in the 90s. And uh, we had an opening in Denver and that kind of thing, bands playing and that sort of thing. But um, what's the name of that? That book is called the Colorado Colorado Crew. It's available th- through his uh, company, which is Donut Crew, uh, which is I'm sorry, Robot Enemy Books. Oh wow! Um, his label was Donut Crew Records, hence the Crew thing. Yeah, we spent uh, two or three years making it. It's a sequel to a book that he did um, a few years earlier called called Denvoid. Uh, which is uh, a similar kind of a thing that covers an earlier time period from about uh, 1982 until 1988. Mm-hmm. And then the book that we collaborated on uh, b- b- picks up where that one left off around 1988 and goes until about 1996. That's when I lived in Denver. Oh, is it? Wow. Okay. I lived on Milwaukee and Colfax and it was scary. Oh, Wow, why? Right down uh, the street from the bird, from the yeah. bluebird or whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And what I took you to Denver? like six months. My sister was living there and okay. I was just curious. I wanted to get out of Austin and see something different than Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a great summer, lots of hiking. And then as soon as it got cold, I started becoming disinterested. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can understand that. The Bluebird was probably having a lot of shows then, though, I imagine, right? Uh, what's the band? Fish. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That guy, the guy from Fish. And also, John Benet Ramsey had that whole thing just happened. Sure. And so yeah, that was I like remember that. everything Very... you heard about for a while. Um, but as far as music, I didn't really go out that much. I just kind of leaned into nature and then went back to Austin. <laughs> Got bored. Because I'd never... I don't know what to do in the snow. I'm not a snow sports person. Sure. Well, neither am I, honestly. I lived there for a long time and never touched a ski or a snowboard. Wow. Still haven't. I mean, I guess I always uh, was... Um, I mean, honestly, I wasn't trying to be preoccupied. I just was preoccupied with, uh, being in, well, in school, I guess, first of all, but, all, but, but more importantly, being in bands and, and putting on shows and that kind of stuff. That's where my, that's where my passions were. So after Denver, did you move to LA after that or? No, I moved, um, uh, my band at the time of moving was called the VSS. That's the era that I know Joe from. Originally, he joined a band who we had become associated with a couple of years before. And then we all started doing a lot of touring together and spending a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, the VSS uh, was formed in Boulder. Um, and then one by one, as everyone finished school, um, I mean, there was there was an eagerness to, to expand our horizons. And um, a couple of people in the big group were Colorado natives who were ready to, to, to get out of town and mm-hmm. And the other two of us were just ready to, you know, try and try and take the band as far as it could go and that kind of thing. And so we moved to, uh, they moved, the three of them moved in mid 95 to San Francisco. 
not that it matters, but one of them actually lived in the South Bay, far, far South Bay, and it was quite a commute for him. But uh, in case he's listening, I don't want to not acknowledge that. Um, I moved out there six months later after I graduated uh, in uh, January of 96, and uh, my girlfriend Julie and I moved to Berkeley. I had always, um, from the first time I went to the Bay Area, I had been enamored with the East Bay. Uh, I love the whole Bay Area. Um, I, th- I thought it was amazing, but there was just something to me that was really cool and, and particularly alluring about living in Berkeley or that kind of vicinity. And so uh, we did that. Um, and I lived there for a few years, then uh, uh, moved to Oakland, which is right next door, for uh, a couple more years. And then eventually my record label was um, kind of becoming um, more and more of a so I, when I moved to the Bay Area, I started a distribution uh, company that was uh, sort of a means to an end because I couldn't – because my label was small and new. I couldn't really get it distributed. I was impatient and very <laughs> uh, energized and very motivated and very um, reluctant to, to, to take the word no sitting down. And so I – Really, the only option for, for distributing the records that I had pressed so far was to trade them off to other little labels in the same situation around the world. And so I was beginning to amass a lot of records um, that I didn't really know, didn't really have any um, means of getting rid of. And I mean, I could take them to Ami- Amoeba and places like that, but they had to take one or two on consignment or something. It was not really happening. So um, I, I began. I started this distribution company, Bottleneck, and um, and sort of used that as as leverage. And and the and um, the both both things, both entities, the the distribution and the label, both um, kind of grew exponentially because of each other. Mm-hmm. And um, it was awesome, um, but also a little frightening and and definitely uh, overwhelming. How the distribution company um, wound down was not particularly something I'm, I'm not particularly proud of. It just sort of crashed and, and burned eventually. Um, I, I had tried to move it. I did, I did um, uh, not that any of this is particularly interesting, but I moved, I moved from the Bay Area down to LA and um, was involved down there in another distribution kind of thing with a pressing plant that, that sort of um, ultimately didn't really work out. And, um, so within a couple of years, I was in San Diego and, um, I, I moved there because, um, really most of the groups I was working with at that point were from there. Um, the locust, of course. And then, um, um, laterally, once I got there, go, go, go Earhart, who I wound up putting out five records for and a group called kill me tomorrow. San Diego was still in that kind of little golden age before everything got real crazy and expensive and, flipped and redeveloped and stuff. So a um, bunch of friends of mine were living in this big group house. It was um, a ton of space. I was able to move the record label in there and myself and uh, lower the overhead for a couple of years. Uh-huh. It was easy for a lot of time to pass there <laughs> very quickly mm-hmm. um, without much being accomplished. I, f- I realized it was just um, – it was – just far enough removed from everything going on in LA as far as um, where I was doing most of the business of the label, printing and record pressing and all that kind of thing, even publicists and that, that kind of stuff. Everything was happening in LA. So I was, I was up there all the time anyway. So just being in San Diego after being this incredible um, kind of like 
opportunity to sort of recharge and and really hunker down with the bands and and um you know i spent a lot of time most of the time i lived in san diego i wasn't even there i was on tour with one band or another right um so actually having to be there and live there as awesome as it was and and no doubt still is it was kind of becoming inconvenient because everything was happening in in la Mm -hmm. and so for the final stretch of the label from about 2000 and uh, through two or three till 2007, it was based in, in LA. I like LA. I love LA and I, and I am very grateful for the chance to, to, to have grown up there, to have gotten there as early as I did in December of 1979, which my dad had loved California and grown up there and was so eager to share all that Hollywood history with uh, me and my, my, the rest of my family. Um, that we were, uh, I was sort of um, privileged to all these personal tours of all kinds of stuff that are, that I, that's still present in my mind when I go back, and so I, I um, feel kind of lucky to have a little window in my mind into another era of that area that doesn't that no one else, maybe beyond a certain age is, has, mm, yeah. and um, not only that, it's changed so much in my lifetime. I feel like I have plenty of those those memories now of my own of things that aren't there anymore. But, right. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Wait, were you ever old enough to be on set on one of your dad's movies? Yes, not for very long. Okay. Um, and it was, um, a, and it was, a, it was a, a bizarre, it was a, t- I'll tell you right now, it was a bizarre way to experience a film set for the first time because my dad was making a film that I've never seen. I, it's, it was one of those f- kind of films that had the title kept changing depending on where it was came out and stuff. It was just like not a good, not a good film. Uh, it was one of his last productions. He had come back to California and was like assistant directing or something. And, mm-hmm. and we went to, Par- I was about eight, I must've been eight or nine. Mm-hmm. We went to Paramount studios one day and um, the scene that was being shot had a fire breathing robot <laughs> that was about two feet high. Rad. Uh, <laughs> And um, that's my most vivid memory is them trying to get this thing to breathe fire properly <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and all of us having to be quiet and um, just being sort of rushed, kind of rushed in and rushed out. But uh, that was the only time actually that I ever visited a set that my dad, oh, that my dad was in charge of. Where is that robot <laughs> now? I, I know. The, I wish I could even remember the name of the film. I mean, it was such a really such a i mean i I could have dreamt it but i actually i do know that it happened it seems it seems like something from a dream but um, wow that's so cool (laughs) my dad uh first of all i should say my dad was twice the twice my mom's age when they met and got married um and he had lived a very colorful life uh up until that point as as a bachelor he left hollywood in the uh, I guess in the early '60s, okay. and went to um, Europe and spent um, ten or fifteen years in Portugal and Spain making spaghetti westerns. And um, uh, from all accounts, he made a lot of them. But what's peculiar about it is that um, he seems to have worked under at least one pseudonym for some reason that he never really explained because. IMDb didn't exist during his lifetime, right? And uh, now that it does exist, it would appear that the name that he used as a pseudonym is also another person. <gasps> is it the Jose name? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, you've, uh, you've read my Wikipedia page. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, Jose Breeze, uh, which in and of itself is almost kind of funny, B-R-I-Z, because it's like B-R-I-S, which is Breeze, which is like a, a Jewish... Oh, Briss? Oh, circumcision. Circumcision. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a, 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 and... So there's part of me that thinks it's almost maybe a joke. Yeah. Like he's like, there's so deep in there. There's like this, fa- there's this funny code for something, but this Jose Breeze character has credits that go on into the, well into the nineties after my dad died. So I don't know. Um, that's just one thing. I mean, he, uh, he told us things about his life that just weren't true. I mean, he had a scar on his, on his, um, upper arm that he, he claimed, um, he got in a in combat. I mean, he's never in combat. He was wow. stationed at Camp Pendleton for a few months. <laughs> I like a storyteller, though. He was a storyteller, and I the 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 frustrating part about all this, as fun as it sounds, and it and kind of is, is that um, you know my sisters and I are are a little bit disappointed that we didn't have the opportunity to to, to get to the bottom of all this with with him. Right. It's it's odd not knowing these things, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even his side of the family is kind of a um, something of a mystery to us. Even his mm-hmm. his ethnicity is actually – I mean, I, I, I guess I need – just last night I was having a conversation with somebody about, um, you know, uh, Ancestry.com or one of these mm-hmm. things. And uh, and uh, I was saying, oh, I'm going to actually get that done. Well, I, I probably should because it'll answer a lot of these questions I know because um, – we uh, we all just speculate. We look at these photos of of my paternal grandmother, who was quite beautiful, and and uh, I don't know. I mean, she she could be, you know, hung- Hungarian or Romanian. She could. I don't know. My dad's career sadly was largely over by the time he had a family, and so I never got the got the experience. For example, of like going to a theater to see one of his mm-hmm. films with mm-hmm. him or anything like that. The work of his that I've seen. I've, uh, has come to, you know, uh, is, is largely not even that remarkable. Um, probably the most sort of infamous thing that he did was a film called White Comanche. It stars William Shatner, ironically, who's in the news today, <laughs> um, for being in space. He actually made a film with my dad, um, where he played two roles, a, a, <laughs> a, a Caucasian cowboy and his, uh, Twin separated at birth and raised by the Comanches, but with a Captain Kirk haircut. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, and uh, a a strange um, fixation for peyote in the script. They keep keep blaming everything on peyote. Oh my god! (laughs) I want to see that because I want to see the peyote scene. To be honest, (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you, it's not the worst of its ilk. Uh, I've seen plenty. I've seen a lot of um, old westerns that are that are easily as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the other actor, you know, there's a couple. I, I, I'm forgetting exactly who, but I know there's a couple of other noteworthy American actors in it. I think somebody from from the per- the show Perry Mason was in it. I think my dad used to direct those, and there was a connection with that guy or something. Joe Cotton was it? Might that be Joe actor? Cotton. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But there's also a very um, striking, I guess, Spanish or Italian actress in it who um, I remember him telling us that they had to get her to read the script. They had to write the script out phonetically so uh. that her mouth would move right. And then they dubbed it anyway because it was not believable. <laughs> <laughs> so she's supposed to be like a, a, an Indian uh, maiden. Okay. 
which in and of itself is ridiculous because she looks like Sophia Loren or something. Yeah, but. I had a hard time. There was no representation for me or my Mexican family when I was a kid mm. and my mom loved Westerns. So that was even wow. more confusing because if anyone had a speaking role in one of the uh, quote unquote tortilla Westerns, mm. they were usually in brown face. <laughs> right. Oh, that's so terrible. God, God. So I would be like, are we real? <laughs> Why does no one on TV look like it? And then also with Sesame Street, they were Puerto Rican. Okay, so there were right. Spanish speaking people, but they spoke differently. So sure. it was a very unreal <laughs> feeling. Interesting. Wow. It's funny. I remember um, I, I, I'm so grateful for this now. And uh, it's almost hard to believe my mom being very English, my dad being pretty clueless to the plight of any brown uh, people anywhere. The first thing that they did they did when we got to LA was take us to Alvera Street, which which I'm actually um, I think is pretty cool because uh, uh, I I don't know whether that has influenced my interest in, in Mexican culture in particular, but uh, now I love going to Alvera Street and uh, feel so comfortable there. And, and uh, they were like, "This is the oldest oldest street in LA. You should see this." And, uh, Of a city. Well, I want to talk about your album art. When you tackle an album cover, do you listen to the record and come up with the ideas from there? Does the music inform your thoughts or are you, are people commissioning just work of yours? Um, honestly, all of the above. Okay. And it's been, it's different in every scenario. Um, for me, it feels so much more convincing uh and uh like a like a like a coherent project if i get the music ahead of time and can and can um have that be a, a factor in my thinking when i'm making something um that happens so comparatively rarely um maybe i i don't know one in 10 projects i might be that lucky mm -hmm. maybe two um, most of the time, um, well, again, it's, it's, it really is case by case. Um, the, the, the sort of, uh, great, uh, flurry of work that I did 10 or 12 years ago with, um, Omar Rodriguez mm -hmm. on all of those records of his that, that are probably the things that people might most know me the most well for, mm -hmm. you know, I would go down, uh, speaking of Mexico, I'd go down to Mexico when he was living there, um, in, in Guadalajara, uh, and spend a week down there and do nothing but make art. Uh, but, but just, just like, uh, you know, with him sort of, uh, coaching me to not attach myself to anything to just, um, to be, to be loose and, and as loose as possible with this digital medium, it still takes some finessing and what have you. But, um, to just um, kind of crank out ideas, not not you know, almost be just stream of consciousness with them, um, and um, not not necessarily set out to do anything to just to just kind of vomit out stuff, mm. and then from that we would sort of pick through it, and and f and he would sometimes um, find things that in his mind just worked or, or just felt like a certain record that he was planning or uh, um, occasionally I would be given um, kind of, you know, 
for his work or the Mars Volta in particular, like um, there might be a, a directive in writing a, sh- a few words, uh, a, f- a few, the essence of an idea or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, those guys just loved the sort of happenstance aspect and the, and a, and a kind of um, they were always embracing a kind of a absurdity of, uh, of just free associative things. And um, I think uh, that was, where a lot of that imagery came from was just sort of um, yeah, literally just throwing, throwing ideas around. And it fits with the psychedelia of the music. It does. Yeah. And then, and um, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of person who, who looks for a m- meaning in things and um, some of those just free associative practices um, would produce things that, that um, inherently meant something to me. Um uh, and if they didn't necessarily, I mean, there's been cases where they certainly have for other people. And, and, uh, so it's, yeah, it was just a, a, a very a kind of liberating process after, as I mentioned before, with, with my fine art experience, like being kind of the, te- the, te- the tendency to overthink things or, or in the inability to finish things, um, working with, with Omar was, um, therapeutic in the sense that there wasn't really time to overthink anything because it was, coming out so quickly it sounds like a really ideal collaborative relationship it really was um uh it was very fulfilling and also very intense my whole um bodily clock (laughs) was reset doing 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 that work and and almost you know i mean uh it's kind of a nocturnal aspect to working with uh to omar in particular and so uh yeah it was just um so it was so great to be able to have the support of record labels who had no doubt that they were going to sell enough of something to make a little bit of fun and experimentation worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly when we were, when Omar was at, when I, I was working as the art director for Sergeant House in LA before I left. And that was um, kind of a tandem arrangement because I was really the in-house person at the label for Omar's label. Mm-hmm. which was an, an imprint through Sergeant House. Um, and so um, that time period, that brief few years there, um, we were afforded the, 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 the luxury really of being able to just kind of go wild. And we did things that uh, I know I uh, would have been probably difficult sometimes for us to do, to, to do or justify uh, GSL. Uh, and so that was really um, a, uh, a fun, just kind of uh, like I said, sort of experimental time yeah. where we were, where I was just kind of thinking like, wow, what have I, what have I always wanted to, what do I, what am I most wowed by when I walk into a bookshop or a record shop and I'm looking at these things? What, mm-hmm. what printing captures my imagination and just and just takes things up another notch? And so I was able to really help make some some of those things possible and and we were able to do some things that were really um cool and and things that i'm proud of i mean the square labels that we did on the nocturnicate the last mars volta lp mm-hmm. um i it's a tiny detail that most people aren't going to care at all about but um that was difficult to do and accomplish and required um you know, special attention every step of the way. And it, oh, and, yeah, incredible. And it's just a cool touch for it, just matches, it just sort of like completes the whole package in a way. 
and it comes with the glasses and everything. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's the dream to have room to experiment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's why I think that's part of why Barney Bubbles was so successful and mm -hmm. did so much because he had that freedom. Yeah. And, and you know, anybody designing for major labels uh, or even not necessarily major labels back in that era, these were, they're going to sell half a million records. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? At least. So like, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Storm Thorgerson and hypnosis mm -hmm. earlier. I mean, I, I think it's, um, what is that record? This I'm, for, I'm forgetting the name of the group now. Um, but it's, a. Uh, they shot it in Egypt or, or Namibia or somewhere in Northern Africa. And um, it's like a sand dune with a bunch of red balls on it. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And I've read somewhere or, or heard an interview or something. I mean, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get that photo taken. But that was, you know, that was an era when they're, when these records were selling, you know, vast numbers. And, and, and what it took to create this imagery was sort of just you know, not even really um, that much of a consideration. They just were happy to do it. It was the nice. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Called, is it Elegy? Elegy. Yeah. Elegy by the nice. Yeah. He liked to do as much uh, in physical space as possible, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's funny because actually uh, in their later work, Hypnosis and then Storm's, um, I can't remember what he was calling a studio at the, at the end that did the Mars Volta. So there's certainly, there's a lot, they, they begin, they do begin incorporating digital mm -hmm. and the images are still in, in, incredible. I mean, there's that one, the Mars, there, there's a Mars Volta one with a guy hanging on a brick wall and it's clearly, it's like an embellished image. It's not, I mean, they shot a guy hanging, but I don't know if he was on a wall like oh. that. And it's, um, it's still an incredible piece of art, but to me, it's not, like wish you were here and yeah. knowing that that is a real photo. There's just something uh, like, there's just something that you can't, can't, can't be surpassed. Mars Volta. Yeah. It's, he's not really hanging though. You can kind of tell. Yeah. yeah. And it's cool. And, and a lot, a lot of their work, particularly their Pink Floyd stuff, I think was still largely huge sets on beaches with, you know, 200 beds and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but they, they, he did start blurring the lines a little bit, but it's, um, the work is incredibly effective. Oh, definitely. But even compared to his, their own earlier work, it's, it's, it's not as good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the collage work. I love all collage. Um, I just did a show on Tadanori Yokuo and, mm, um, yeah. I'm just a huge fan of your work, obviously, um, it's just, well, that's very kind it's of very, very cool. I, I'm going to put in the intro, like, do not listen to this until you've seen <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, and where can people find you and find this work to see you? What's the best way? And I want to talk about how to, how people can get your book. So, um, my website, uh, I, as I mentioned br briefly earlier, I kind of have a day job these days and, um, I run a nonprofit and, and it's, it's heavily impacted my ability to, to make art, uh, right now. Uh, I don't know if that disqualifies me from, from being on the show or not. Uh, I don't want to seem like oh my God. <laughs> you've only, false advertising. Yeah. You've only designed 111 <laughs> albums. I don't know. Fair enough. Um, I, I have every intention of getting back to doing that. And I have had the good fortune of having my work appear with some, some music this year. 
online and, and physical formats that are still on the, in the process of coming out, which is great. It's nice cool. to still be in the game, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but my website has uh, probably the, the biggest chunk of my art that's online, and that's just my name, sunnyk.com. Okay. And uh, I guess one thing that I, I probably should mention that I haven't mentioned here, it's very clear in the book, hasn't been so clear from anything I've said today, but um, the collage work, the digital collage work that has mostly been what I've um, had published and record covers and that kind of thing um, is, is almost entirely made from so-called found images, right? Like, but sort of the, the purpose, the original satisfaction in making the art for me was how easy it was to find the pieces for it and put them together and, and quickly arrive at something that I felt was, um, I don't know, just for, for one reason or another, just, just felt, um, meaningful and an appropriate response to the stimuli in my life at the time. Mm. Moved into a new apartment. I was living alone. I had plugged in this computer. It wasn't even, I had never even heard, it was literally the dawn of Wi-Fi and all that stuff. And, and at least in my world, and I, and I somehow connected to the internet for my apartment without having a, without paying for a signal or anything like that. And I was like, this is incredible. And I just started going, you know, digging around on Google images and pulling things off and making things to occupy my time and, and um, um, just sort of as an outlet. And I quickly felt a sort of artistic drive, if you want, or, or, per, or a purpose starting to develop where I, I was, I began kind of challenging myself to create things from, with, from only from what I could find. Mm. And, um, you know, started to sort of like understand how search engines worked and how to refine my, my wording and to, to achieve things, to find things. I mean, none of this sounds particularly interesting, but, it, but it was for me kind of a, a revelatory moment. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just felt like despite my own hangups with this and with making digital art and my own um, shortcomings as a fine artist and, and my own like lack of, uh, of um, satisfaction, mm. this medium somehow comes close to that for me, comes, comes close to satisfying uh, the urge that uh, inspires me to do it in the first place as convenient and available as the materials themselves are often um, I, I go to the joy in it for me is to try and emulate painting. Right. Mm. Like I, even though I, I don't rely on tricks of Photoshop very, very much and filters and that kind of thing. Mostly it's just cut and paste, but um, I strive my ambition. My, my great hope is that these things um, defy their origins and their seeming um, sort of like just add waterness to them, um, which is probably what some people would would feel is the is the uh, is what makes them questionable as as works of art, and and the and not to mention the you know the whole uh, pilfering of, of other people's stuff. I, I understand that that's problematic. I really do. <laughs> uh, but um, collages are an appropriate reaction to the time we live in and the, mm -hmm. and the tools available to us. And, and if nothing more, there are commentary on that. Absolutely. That's how I take it. And that's how they come across. Like the medium itself is part of the message. And regardless of whether you're pilfering, which I think is actually really cool and funny, um, 
Uh, I think the compositions are absolutely masterful and it doesn't matter what you're using. Like, and not, not that you haven't chosen well. I'm just saying like, it's a whole other element being able to create these landscapes and um, these worlds that you create. Well, I'm very grateful to you for saying that. And, and I'm, 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 I'm glad that they have the kind of uh, effect on you that they do. Um, that that's music to my ears, really. I mean, I, I want them to not be limited by their medium. Absolutely. And you are truly inspiring other people. So I, I wouldn't get too well, hung you. up on the gatekeeping <laughs> of what art is or not. So I think all that is Good. crumbling well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. No doubt about that at all. And, um, and I'm grateful to you for that, for, for your, for your opinion on that, because, uh, it's good to hear other people. Um, it's good to have an outside perspective on that. It's de- definitely easy to get stuck in an echo chamber. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, my pleasure. It was great. Yeah, thank you. Nice to meet thank you. Thank you for your interest in this stuff. Thank you for all of your work. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm, I'm so glad there's people like you who appreciate it. Oh, honestly, definitely. It uh, makes it all mean something. Bye. Thanks, honey. Bye-bye. <laughs>